So there are times when our actions and our awareness aren't in sync, as though our actions and our awareness are operating on different planes. You ever been in the shower only to realize I've been in here for a long time, I'm not quite sure what I've cleaned. I think I've shampooed my hair multiple times before. I'm like, did I, did I shower, did I shampoo my head? I don't remember, I was kind of in a fog doing the things, but my actions and my awareness weren't synced up. Or maybe you are driving somewhere and you realize you've been driving for like five, 10 minutes and you don't really remember. Like you know you took the right turns, sometimes the right turns, maybe the wrong turns, but you're like, oh, how did I get here? Actions and awareness not not synced up. Or maybe the more well-known phenomenon, sleep talking. Any sleep talkers? Any sleepwalkers? And many years ago, probably 10 years ago, I was woken up in the middle of the night by one of my kids stumbling around the hallway around midnight, which just by the way, midnight is not my prime time. (laughs) But one night, so this is like 10 years ago, so this is six-year-old Logan. He was stumbling around the hallway around midnight And uh, I think that night, oftentimes, if I were to hear my kids get up in the middle of the night, I would get up and go see what they were doing. But that night, I just did not want to get up out of bed because it was late and I was sleeping and I was praying that my wife would get up and take care of it, but she (laughs) was sleeping more soundly than I was. And so I heard him bump around the hallway a few times and I was waiting, because again, as a parent, you pick up on these things, and you know the pitter-patter of each kid. Like, my, the pitter-patter of Kayla was different than the pitter-patter of Kelsey, which was different than the thud pitter-patter of Logan. And so I knew their different foot patterns, so I knew it was Logan as he was thudding around, but I heard him walk in the hallway, but then I never heard him go back, and that's what woke me up. I'm like, what's he doing? So I jump out of bed, and sure enough, Logan had managed his way into the guest room, which was across the way from our bedroom. And by the time I caught up with him, he had his footy PJs fully unzipped, underwear down, and was getting ready to go to the bathroom in the guest room. I was two seconds away from cleaning up a massive mess, but we caught him in time. Like, I think we can all agree that partial awareness with our activity can be destructive at times or dangerous. We are meant as human beings to live in action, awareness, sync, alignment. And if we aren't, like we need to wake up. So open your Bibles this morning to Jonah chapter one. Jonah chapter one. So two weeks ago, we opened up a new series, a Lenten series in the book of Jonah. We're calling it Jonah in the Mirror. I tried to explain a few weeks ago that Jonah is one of these books and one of these stories that many people who are in the church are familiar with. In fact, many of us would say, I know the story of Jonah, when in fact, we may not. And I borrowed from the Princess Bride a few weeks ago I do not think that word means what you think it means. We're talking about Jonah or Lent or even the idea of being of repent. So Jonah, contrary to Veggie Tales, contrary to most kids' Bibles, Jonah is not a hero. 
In fact, Jonah is not a cute little Bible story. In fact, Jonah is not a person that we want to emulate. But there's a ton to learn from the life and story of Jonah. So today we're going to dive a little further into chapter one. We get to see what this Hebrew prophet does as he receives the word of the Lord. And I think what's going to be true for us each week as we keep moving through this is the more we watch the screen of the Jonah story, the more we discover what we find is ourselves looking in the mirror and seeing some parts of our own life and story and mentality and life that we may need to learn more about. So to the sleep talker or the sleepwalker, to the one who has a disconnect between their actions and their awareness. Ephesians 5.14 says it this way, wake up, O sleeper. Wake up, O sleeper. Jonah is a story about a man who falls asleep while running from God. And in his slumber, in his sleep, in his sin, everybody else around him pays the price, as often happens with sin. So here's Jonah, chapter one. I'm just gonna start at the beginning. Uh, We're gonna focus on the second half of the chapter, but here's the story as it gets told. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So I noted this a few weeks ago when we started that the opening part of Jonah gives us a clue about what we're reading. This phrase that begins in verse one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. That phrase, that line, it's classic prophet. Language. It's, it's the classic opening for the prophetic books. You can look at a variety of other prophets and you'll find that same phrase opening up the book. So as you read the book of Jonah, the very first words, the very first verse, the very first line, you should cue us in. Like, oh, this is one of those prophet stories. But then I tell you, the book of Jonah is like many of the other prophet stories. Most of the prophets, we come to them to hear their message. And Jonah gives a message, a very short, brief message. But when you read the book of Jonah, we don't just pay attention to what Jonah declares as a prophet. His life is meant to be the message. So pay more attention to Jonah's actions than even what he says. 
there's a lot that gets revealed in the way that Jonah lives. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. God's word said, get up. He at the time was in Israel, northern Israel. Get up, go to Nineveh, because their evil has come up before me, before the Lord. Uh, The map here, I use this at the opening too, gives us a little bit of the context here. So here's Jonah here in northern Israel, and he is supposed to go to Nineveh, and instead he goes to way the heck away, right? So he goes about as far away as he can. He goes in the opposite direction that God tells him to go. He goes to the Straits of Gibraltar. He goes to the far ends of the earth. He almost goes off the map of the known world. He says, God tells me to go this way. I am not going that way. I am going to run far, far away. Jonah gets up. Partial obedience. He just goes the wrong direction. He disobeys. And in doing so, we're told twice in the first three verses why he's leaving. We're told that he is leaving to flee from the presence of the Lord. And again, we mentioned this in the first week in the opening. The book of Jonah is satire. It's meant to be funny. It's meant to, my kids made fun of me for laughing the way I did a few weeks ago, but it's meant to like cue the laugh track. It's like Saturday Night Live. It's satire. Everything is exaggerated and it's meant to point out the idiocy of what's happening because a Hebrew prophet would know Psalm 139 that you can't actually run away from the presence of the Lord. But Jonah is trying to flee the presence of God. And so he goes down. We're watching Jonah move down. Throughout chapter one, the movement of Jonah is down, 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 down. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down to get on a boat. He goes down into the belly of the boat. Eventually, he'll go even further down. So Jonah's sleeping. He's trying to catch some Z's. But more than just like, oh yeah, Jonah had to set his clocks differently and he's probably a little wiped out, that's why he's sleeping. He's not just sleeping, he is sleeping, but he's sleeping. He's sluggish, he's unaware, he's apathetic, he's lethargic. There's this growing disconnect between his actions and his awareness. And this scene of Jonah in chapter one is this really powerful picture of sin. But none of us would know much about that. So we'll keep reading and watch Jonah. So verse four, the runaway prophet Jonah boards the ship and things go from bad to worse. And pardon my um, dated analogy here, but things go Gilligan's Island. The weather started getting rough. The tiny ship was tossed. If not for the courage of the fearless crew, the minute would be lost. Okay, I'm not the only old person here. 
So he gets on the ship and this massive storm hits. I love the language of the text here. It says a great wind gets thrown. The Hebrew verb there is like throwing a spear. God is like, oh yeah, Jonah, you gonna run away from me? And he throws this great wind and the storm gets stirred up and the author personifies the ship. It says the ship is threatening to break up. Ships don't talk, but if they did talk, it'd be like, what's going on here? I'm gonna lose it here. So everything's exaggerated. Great wind, threatening boat, and the net result for everyone on board the ship is absolute chaos. It's absolute pandemonium. Verse five says that the mariners were afraid, and I'll avoid any Seattle mariners jokes here, but the sailors were freaked out. Like, that's when you know you're in trouble when the professionals are scared. Like, if you're flying, like, I'm good until the flight attendants start freaking out. When the flight attendants freak out, that's when you should be afraid. When you're on the ship and the sailors are afraid, that's when you know things are bad. And the storm is stirring. The wind is raging. The boat is getting tossed. People are starting to throw things overboard. Everyone is panicking. And in their panic, what do they start doing? Verse 5, the mariners were afraid. And they begin to pray. They begin to pray. They're so freaked out. They're so panicked. The pagan sailors begin to pray each to their own God. Again, remember in this culture, most of the deities were localized. So each city had their own God. There was a God of this and a God of that. And so they each had their own deity. So they're freaking out in the midst of a storm and they start just crying out to any of the God that they can name that somehow would make this situation better. They're trying to save their lives. There's some artwork of some of the storms. People have pictured this. Uh, Jonah... Yeah, I don't think the waves were that big. I don't think the boat was that small. Or the next one, this is a really crowded boat. That's more like a little raft that they're on. I'm like, man, someone didn't count the number of bodies on that ship. But there's this scene of chaos and pandemonium and there's wind and there's rain and there's waves and there's pitching and turning and some of the crew are tossing stuff overboard and others are crying out to their God somehow to save them. I just want to point out as the story is unfolding and Jonah is asleep in the bottom of the boat, running away from God and his call, and everyone else is freaking out, this becomes a really good picture of the consequences of sin. Scholar Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, he says, at this point in time, Jonah is a relational wrecking ball. Which was what happens when you begin to try to run away from God and do things your own way. The consequences of the sin in your life impacts not only you, but others get caught in your wake. And it's true in your life, and it's true in your marriage, and it's true in your family, it's true in your extended family, and it's true in your workplace, and it's true in a church. That others get caught in the wake of sin. And these sailors are like, we were just gonna go for a nice boat ride and now we're in the middle of this storm and they don't know what happened. All this activity, all this noise, all this chaos, and where's Jonah? Sleeping. 
And again, the, the contrast couldn't be more stark. The person who should be most awake and alert is sleeping. And instead, it's these pagan sailors that are the most awake and alert. The person who should be praying is sleeping, and the pagan sailors are praying. Everything's backwards here. So Jonah is in this deep REM sleep until the captain comes flying down and is like, hey, sleeper, wake up. What are you doing? Arise and call out to your God. We're all calling out to our gods. Now is your turn. Again, the irony of the story is thick. The pagan polytheistic captain of the sea has to remind the Hebrew prophet to pray. Which leads to further interaction with the crew. Verse 7. They said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Is there another slide? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So as the storm deteriorates and the conditions deteriorate, the sailors on board get smart. And they're like, what's going on here? Maybe this isn't just a random storm. Maybe something divine is at work here. Maybe this is an evil curse that someone has brought upon us. And so they cast lots. Let's figure out who is the cause of this problem, who's the cause of this storm. And in this day and age, that was a very common thing to do was to cast lots, to roll dice or pick sticks. And the lot fell on Jonah. And they're like, all right, buddy. Like, this is your deal. What is going on? So they pepper him with questions. Why is this evil happening? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Rapid fire questions. And Jonah gives a really interesting response. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I'm from that line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I fear the Lord. He uses the covenant name of God. I fear Yahweh. When Lord appears in all caps, L-O-R-D, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's the covenant name of God. I, I, I fear Yahweh. He's the God of heaven. He's the God of the sea. <laughs> the sea that we're on in the storm that we're in. He's the God who made the dry land. It's interesting. I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. Does anyone see the irony of that? Yeah, I'm, um, I'm Hebrew. I fear Yahweh, the one who's made the sea. I fear the covenant God of Israel. And he's told them, I'm trying to run away from him. And again, this story, irony, satire. Anyone know what Jonah's name means? Now the next slide. His name means innocent dove. Cue laugh track. 
son of Amittai, which means son of faithfulness. Uh huh. So Jonah, the innocent dove, the son of faithfulness, says, I fear the Lord, the one who made the sea that we're in the storm on. And the sailors think, no, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. If you did fear, or you can translate that worship, if you did fear Yahweh, if you did worship the Lord, you wouldn't be here on this boat. We wouldn't be in this massive storm. This is, the technical term here I think is spiritual mumbo jumbo. Religious words, religious phrases. You may say that you do, you may have the right words, you may have the right name, you may have the right title, you may have the right heritage, you may have the right people group, you may have the right religious jargon, you may have spiritual sounding answers. But all you gotta do is look at his life and his life is telling a message that is completely different than his name, completely different than his heritage, and completely different than him saying, I fear Yahweh, because if he did, he wouldn't be on that boat and they wouldn't be in the storm. And you know who sniffs it out first? The pagans. <laughs> the people who are like, no you don't, are the people who are like, what are you doing? They smell Jonah's hypocrisy and they realize that Jonah is fast asleep. He's sleepwalking, he's lethargic, he's full of it. He is saying one thing and he's doing another because he's a hypocrite. So when does the story of Jonah turn into a mirror? Right about now. Who's this book for? Religious people who have the right name and have the right words who say, I fear Yahweh. Really? And this is the beauty of the text and the Holy Spirit's work in the text. As soon as you begin shaking your head at Jonah, oh, Jonah, as soon as you begin wagging your finger at Jonah, as soon as you begin looking down your spiritual nose at Jonah, that's when you're caught in the trap. Gotcha. Because this is Jonah in the mirror, my friends. This is what a lot of the United States is doing when they look at the church right now. And they're like, I hear you saying these words, but I'm not quite sure I see it in the way that you guys live. You love God? You love people? Like great commandment stuff? Really? You fear Yahweh. And why are you in the boat going in the opposite direction, causing quite the storm? If you're tempted to say, man, how could Jonah be so sleepy? How could Jonah be so misaligned in his words and his life? How could Jonah be so self-centered that he would run away from what he knows to be true and in the process hurt lots of people around him? How could that be? That's some next level of hypocrisy. That looks a lot like me sometimes. And now you're getting the story of Jonah. 
So as things start coming out into the open, everyone on board starts seeing it and knowing it. Here's how it goes. Next slide. Then they said to him, well, what should we do to you? That the sea may quiet down for us, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, well, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for, it, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, the pagan sailors, call out to Yahweh, oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and, let, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So they realize that Jonah's the reason for the storm. They ask Jonah, what should we do? Jonah's response, throw me overboard. Again, we, we love the VeggieTales version of this, the kid's Bible version of this. Do you know what Jonah is saying? Kill me. Verse 11, he volunteers to be thrown overboard. And the sailors... The pagan, non-Yahweh, worshiping sailors. They're like, nah, we don't want to kill the guy. So they're, let's try harder. And it says they try hard to return to land. Again, the word in Hebrew for repent is that word. So the Hebrew, the pagan sailors, they repent in their rowing to get back to land. They turn. But the storm doesn't relent, and the winds keep kicking up and it gets more tempestuous until they're finally like, well, either we're all going to die, so let's just throw this guy overboard and see if, if it works. And so they pick him up and they throw him overboard. And finally, the storm's over. They pick up the rebellious prophet, they throw him into the sea, and I'll give you a little sneak peek toward next week. Verse 17 the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That's where we're going to stop for today, though. A couple of things as we close. This story makes me think a lot about the nature of sin. Especially in the season of Lent. So again... Why is Jonah trying to get to Tarshish? Why does he run away? Again, um, the story tells us, but we've been told lots of different things about the story. Some will say that Jonah wants to go to Tarshish because he's lazy. But read the story. Jonah isn't lazy. He actually has to work harder <laughs> to disobey God. He puts extra effort and energy to run away. He's not lazy. This guy's not lazy. Some say it's because he's afraid. Like, I'm afraid, I'm afraid of going to Nineveh. And I did describe the first week. Nineveh was known for its epic brutality. The stuff they did militarily was grotesque and evil, stacking heads, cutting off arms. It was gross what they did. But John isn't afraid to go to Nineveh. It's not about fear for him. 
He's not saying, well, what happens if I go? What will they do to me? He's not afraid that if he goes, that they won't listen to him. If you read the story, which we'll get to in the chapters to come, he's afraid if he goes that they will listen to him and that they will repent and that they will experience forgiveness and grace. And Jonah is like, those people don't deserve forgiveness like me. Jonah hates them. They're wicked. They're evil. I don't want them to know about God's grace. God's going to forgive them, and I don't want him to forgive them. And so he's hard-hearted. Verse 3 again tells us, verse 1, verse 3 tells us that he's running away from the presence of the Lord. And we've laughed at Psalm 139 that says you can't run away from the presence of the Lord, but I would say that there's actually maybe two senses in which we experience the presence of the Lord. And Psalm 139 talks about the presence of the Lord in a geographic spatial sense, that there's nowhere you can go where you can run away from God. You can go far away. You can go all the way across the map. He's still there. You can't run away from the geographic spatial presence of the Lord. But the word here in the text talks about he's running away from literally the face of the Lord. And so I think Jonah in some ways isn't just trying to run away from the geographic presence of the Lord. He's trying to run away from the relational presence of the Lord. He's trying to get away from God face to face. He's saying, God, I don't want you in the center of my life. God, I don't want your word. I don't want your ways. I don't want you. I want to do me. So it's not like I'll find an island where God is not. Jonah's saying, I want to do things my way. Because Jonah does not like God's heart or plan for his enemies. And he would rather die. Throw me overboard. I would rather die than repent. I would rather die than obey you. The story really begins to challenge our notion of sin. What it looks like. How it shows up. Who it affects. Because Jonah is religious and his sin runs deep. He plays the part. And yet in the story, who needs to repent? Jonah needs to repent. This story reminds us that forgiveness and grace, they aren't just for the bad guys. Forgiveness and grace is the stuff that we breathe. It makes me ask a question, what is sin? What's sin? What's sin? If someone were to ask you at work tomorrow, hey, you're one of those Jesus people, what's sin? Any thoughts? Separation. Okay, separation. What's sin? Rebellion. What else? Putting yourself on the throne. Putting yourself on the throne. Yeah. It's a tough question. Or maybe you're just afraid to say it out loud. Violation of the commandments. Okay, violation of the commandments. 
So we've got all these different ways of talking about sin. I'm not here to give you the definition of sin. Some talk about sin as maybe being like a moral misstep, breaking a commandment. The Greek word for sin is hamartia, which comes from archery, and it means to miss the mark. You're shooting for bullseye and you hit not bullseye. So there's a sense of those things. Uh, There's a a great African theologian, St. Augustine, He uses Latin and says that sin is homo incurvatus in se. Any Latin people in here? Come on, what is it? Okay, that's fine. (laughs) Anybody else? Any Latin scholars in the house? Go to the next slide. He describes sin as humanity curved in on itself. That we've come, we've come to the point, yes, it may be involved breaking commands and it may involve moral missteps or it may be a variety of things missing the mark, but ultimately the reason why we do those things is because we have curved in on ourselves to the point of collapsing in of ourselves in self-love. And so it's the point of saying to God, God, I love me. I think it was a Joyce that said me on the throne or something like that, Yeah. I'm so curved in on myself because I become the ultimate. And Jonah is the poster boy of this. And the more we watch him, he is just concerned about him. And so he goes down, 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 down. Contrast that with the sailors. Do I have this on the next slide? Yeah, the Hebrew is running from God. In the story, the pagans end up worshiping God. The people who were out are now in, and the one who thinks he's in is out, and the good guy is the bad guy, and the bad guys become the good guys, and the one who thinks he has no sin has the deepest sin, and the ones who live blatantly in in sin have changed and are seen fearing, worshiping, and sacrificing to the Lord. This, This is the gospel. This is the script being flipped. Who's in? I'm in. No, you're not. I fear God. Do you really? What a strange irony. Jonah is so curved on him, in on himself, he misses what God is doing. God says, I'm bringing a word for you to take to the Ninevites. And he's like, I hate those pagans so much. I don't want them to know your grace and know you. So I'm going to run away. And while he's running away, at the end of the story, guess what's happening? The pagans are sacrificing and worshiping Yahweh. God's like, I'm doing a work all around you. And you're missing out on this. So maybe you're here today and you identify very closely with Jonah. Maybe you were born in church. My grandpappy was a Christian. My mammy was a Christian. I have been in church my whole life, and you know the flannel graphs and the Bible stories, and you know the songs. You know the hand motions to the songs. You've been around church so long. You look the part, act the part, play the part, family, heritage, title, but maybe deep in your heart, there are places where you too are running from God and you've heard his word, and you know his command, and you know his heart, but you don't want him center. As you read the Jonah story, may you hear God's invitation for you to wake up. 
Or maybe today you're like the sailors. And you don't know God, and you don't come from a Christian family, and you don't have a religious background. And maybe you just came today because a friend invited you today. May you hear God's heart for you. That he exists. That he's drawing you to himself. That there's a chance to repent and receive forgiveness and grace. Because here's the good news. Unlike the sailors, for you to worship God today, you don't have to make your own sacrifice. God has already made one for you through Jesus. Matthew 12, 41 says that someone greater than Jonah has come. The Bible tells us that someone came who did not run away from the Father's call, but ran obediently toward it, toward the cross. The Bible tells us that there is someone who came who didn't wish judgment on the nations, but instead he wept for the lost and the broken. The Bible tells us that innocent blood already has been shed so that we don't have to get thrown overboard. Because of this man Jesus, the greater Jonah, we too can taste forgiveness and grace today and deal with the curvature of ourselves upon ourselves and open up to the God who made us and loves us and loves the world. And I know I'm taking a few more minutes than I probably should today, but I, I, I gotta do this as I end. I can't read Jonah 1 without also thinking of another storm and another boat. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. There was another boat and another storm and there was another sleeper who was asked to wake up when Jesus was in the boat with his disciples in the midst of a storm. And I won't read the passage to you, but go ahead and go to the next slide. There's this parallel. Jonah is sleeping. Jesus is sleeping. The captain wakes up Jonah. The disciples wake up Jesus. The sailors question Jonah. The disciples question Jesus. The sea was rough in both stories. The men were rowing hard. The disciples were rowing hard. Jonah is thrown overboard and the sea is calm. But in this other story, Jesus is woken up from his sleep. He stands up and he speaks and the sea is calmed. The sailors end up in awe and the disciples are in awe. And it's really interesting. The question that the disciples ask Jesus is when they wake him up from his sleep, they're like, don't you care that we're perishing? And he does care. Jonah couldn't give a rip. But Jesus cared. And Jesus didn't have to be thrown overboard. He and his authority calmed the storm. And we discover in yet another way that Jesus is the anti-Jonah. Jesus cares for those who are perishing. Jesus is not running away, but doing the will of the Father. We find Jesus who is selfless, others-focused, sacrificial in his giving and the authority to calm everything. He gives salvation to the Gentiles like us. He forgives the sin of the world. He heals the world, and he deals with the sleepy, sinful, drowsy, religious hearts of humanity. Jesus is the way out of our spiritual slumber. He's the savior of the soul curved in on itself. And my invitation today for you is to ask this question. Where do I need Jesus to wake me up? 
wake up. Let's pray. Ah, Jesus, so much better than Jonah. Jesus, Savior, Redeemer, you care for us. You forgive us. Our need for you, Jesus, is great. And Lord, as we hold up the mirror of Jonah to our lives, Lord, a lot of people in this room here are religious, church background. God, save us from hypocrisy. Jesus, save us from cheap words. Save us, God, from going through the motions. God, save us from saying one thing and doing another. Jesus, we need you. And we are so thankful that we have you. And may you teach us the way of repentance as the way of life. And any moment we turn back into ourselves, may we run to the cross and find you forgiving us again. Lord, shape us, Lord, as we sit, even this morning in the shape of the cross. Lord, shape us again to be cross-shaped people. Shape our vision of the world. Lord, may we not be hard-hearted toward the others. May we not look down our noses, but be on our knees before you. Heal us, forgive us, restore us. And God, may we run to the places you send us with the good news of a God like that. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.